good. Um, so we're in the middle of this kind of summer journey through the Gospel of Luke. Our goal was really as a church to be kind of in the Word of God together. And we kind of began up here for the first time, or the first couple of times, we sort of began this summer by passing out all these study books that we were challenging everybody to go through Luke together. Really the goal was for you to spend time in God's Word, right? That as a church, our, our Sunday morning experience really isn't to entertain you. It's not to, you know, keep you from falling asleep or hopefully make you come back. It's to introduce you to God's Word, and we want you to be spending time with God and His Word on your own, and then we're coming here together, and we're exploring God's Word together, and our life group on Tuesday nights using it, and they're unpacking. And the whole idea was, what if we all got involved in the Gospel of Luke together? What if we, we met with Jesus there? And the challenge, really, in the middle of all that was, we want you to know God more. And the little devotional that we've used and given out walks you through how to have a quiet time and how to read the Bible. And, and that's really our goal as a church is to introduce all of us to pa- becoming passionate about spending time in God's Word, knowing God more. So really that's what we're doing this summer. And we're kind of journeying through Luke and I'm lifting out one of those lessons each week and I'm kind of exploring it from a little bit different angle usually than uh, the book does. But that's what we're doing. So we're not really going verse by verse in the book of Luke. We're kind of going you know, study by study. And this morning we find ourselves in the middle of Luke chapter 9, I think. Luke chapter 8. Take that back. Luke chapter 8 um, in this, this journey. And, and each week what I've done is I've sort of taken a word and I've, I've paired it with that study as, as sort of an anchor point for us to look at. And we've looked at the ideas of worship. Um, we've looked at gospel, we've looked at obedience, we looked at salvation, and this morning we're going to be looking at this story through the lens and really the anchor point of hope. And not hope is some kind of idea or ideology, but hope literally is sort of spoken by God himself into the middle of our desperation and fear. And at moments in our life, uh, we are all there, and, and moments of, we have moments of desperation and fear. And we're going to meet two people this morning, dramatically and amazingly different people. That are caught in those same moments, and we're going to see the God of the universe speak hope into both of their lives. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 8, and uh, let's take a moment, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to open your word this morning. I thank you that your word is living and active. God, as you say, it is sharper than any double-edged sword that penetrates even the dividing joints and marrow, soul, and spirit. God, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and God, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you something. Maybe to to just share a word of hope with you. Pray for someone beside you, um, in front of you, behind you, just around you. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Just whisper that God would move in them. pray that you would move in this text this morning, that you would reveal truth to us, Father. Your, your Holy Spirit would teach our hearts. Father, we know that we cannot know you apart from your move. And so we surrender our agendas and our hearts to you. And we ask you to teach us. In the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. So a few years ago, I, I explored this same story, but we used the gospel of Mark. And we kind of used it in an exploration of, of the idea of miracles. And we were, we were really looking at a series that we look at the miracles in Scripture and we ask ourselves the question, do we really believe that God still does the miraculous? So 
We're going to look at that same story, but in Luke's account. And we're going to actually journey back and forth to Mark a little bit because he gives some, some pretty amazing detail. But we're going to use that same story, and we're going to explore it from the idea of hope. So this is where we pick up, Luke chapter 8, verse 40. It says, Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named, and then this is, gets a little hairy because I've mispronounced it a whole lot, but it's Jairus. So if I say Jairus, that's wrong. Okay, correct me. It's Jairus. Then a man named Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus says, Someone has touched me. I know the power has gone out from me. And then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet in the presence of all the people. She told why she had touched him and that she had been instantly healed. And then she said, he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and said, Your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone in except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. And her spirit returned. And at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. And her parents were astonished. But he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. So two things are happening in this story. Two simultaneous encounters are happening, and they really are remarkable. I mean, here's Jesus coming into town, and the people were expecting him. Word had spread, and I say this all the time, that when Jesus showed up, people showed up in the massive numbers. I mean, they all wanted to see him, and they had heard that Jesus was coming, and people were expecting him. In fact, we know the crowd was so large that they were pressing all up against him. Well, the synagogue leader, right, which is a very prominent religious person, wasn't a Pharisee, but it was someone who was in charge of the worship life in the synagogue. They chose the participants. They made sure everything was in order. It was a very high-ranking kind of religious figure, someone that had a lot of authority. Well, this, this person, who we know by the name of Jairus, right, he was a synagogue leader, came to Jesus, right, the sort of wandering rabbi that the religious leaders wouldn't have anything to do with. And he, he comes to Jesus, and we see him fall at Jesus' feet, pleading with him, saying, my 12-year-old girl is dying. Please help. Mark records it as saying, he, he pleaded with Jesus, saying, please come and lay your hands on her so that she will live. So we have this leader, Jairus, a synagogue uh, kind, of, kind of person in charge of things, throwing himself at Jesus' feet as he presses into town. And as they get up and he raises this man from his feet and they begin to walk towards his house, this crowd is massively pressing up against him. And it says the woman who has been subject to bleeding for 12 years, meaning that she had a condition, right, that couldn't be cured. Mark tells us that her condition, she had spent all of her money and no doctors could help her and she was getting worse. She presses through this crowd. And I'll tell you a bit more about her condition in a little bit. But she presses through this crowd. She touches just the hem, the edge of Jesus' cloak. And instantly we hear that she's healed and Jesus comes to this complete stop. 
hundreds, maybe thousands of people pressed along the street. And he stops and he looks at everybody and he says, basically the disciples, he says, who touched me? And the disciples go, what do you mean who touched you? There are literally hundreds of people chest to chest. Everybody is touching you. And Jesus basically says, no, not like that. Someone touched me because I felt, I felt it. I felt power go out from me. Everybody denies it, said we didn't do it. And then the woman who knows that she can't go unnoticed, she, she comes trembling, it says, and falls at his feet. Meanwhile, Jairus is going, hey, are we going to go save my daughter? And this woman who's got this condition is hanging on the feet of Jesus, trembling, and she tells him exactly why she touched him, right? Mark records that what she said was, I knew that if I could just get close enough to touch the hem of his robe, I would be healed. And Jesus looks at her and he stands her up and he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. And then about that time while he was still speaking, one of the servants, because Jairus was kind of a big deal, comes from his household and he looks at the teacher, Jesus, and he looks at Jairus and he says, your daughter's dead. Don't bother him anymore. And Jesus basically looked right there and looks at this Jairus fellow and he says, don't be afraid. Just believe. So they journey over to his house. People are wailing. I mean, I think I've mentioned this before. During kind of funeral processions or at those times of mourning, I mean, the Jewish people were professionals at it. And they would wail and carry on, and they would do it for weeks at a time. And so it wasn't just like soft sobbing. These people were screaming. They were wailing. Because this daughter, this 12-year-old girl, had just died. And Jesus arrives there, and he takes Peter and James and John and, and Jairus' wife and him, and he goes inside, and he tells the people to stop screaming basically because the girl's still alive and they laughed at him the text says that they literally laughed at him because they knew he, she was dead jesus takes him inside and he looks at the little girl and he basically says get up and she rises he tells them to feed her um not really because after you've been dead a while you're hungry but just to demonstrate i don't think just to demonstrate that she's really alive and says so parents were astonished and he looks at him and says don't tell anyone now I find these stories incredible because on the, at, the, at the onset, these are, are two of the most polar opposite people that you can find in all of Scripture. Okay, so you've got this religious leader, this synagogue leader who has a name, Jairus, who is in charge of the synagogue, who is in charge of the worship life of Israel, who is a big deal, who is healthy, socially healthy, who is physically healthy. All the things from a kind of political and social and cultural movement, he is the picture of health. You've got him, and then you have this woman who doesn't even have a name in our story, who had been subject to bleeding, this condition for 12 years. She was literally ceremonially unclean. She couldn't touch any other person. You have both of these people in the middle of this story, two polar opposites, one the picture of culture and religious health, and the other the picture of cultural and religious abandonment and isolation radically different but their stories are so remarkably similar that i think it's one of those moments where you just look and you say god is constantly at work and he speaks hope in the middle of their lives there's a few things i want you to see about their similarities the first is that they are both in the middle of desperation now that may look obvious from the onset but look in the depth of this story because a lot of times we just sort of gloss over these stories but in these words there is such incredible emotion and depth, and, and they are desperate. I mean, you've got to understand that this Jairus fellow, 
his desperation is really powerful. And I kind of can catch a small glimpse of this. I have a 12-year-old daughter. And I started thinking as I was rereading this last night, how would I feel if, if, I had, if I knew that she was dying and I'd explored every other option and there was nothing there? How desperate would I be? And those of you that have children know what this might feel like. To know that your daughter is on the brink of death and there is nothing that you can do, that desperation that would drive you to throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. I mean, there's some incredible moments in that desperation. You get the sense that there's this power, this real, raw emotion for a man of his standing to throw himself at the feet of Jesus, who the religious community wanted to kill. And then you have this sort of unnamed woman in the middle of her desperation. Her desperation is completely different. For 12 years, she has suffered a condition that has made her a social and religious outcast. Leviticus 15 tells us that her condition, right, because she suffered from this bleeding, she was unclean for as long as she had it. It meant that for 12 years, she couldn't even live in town. She had to leave the city gates because anything or anyone that she touched would become unclean. And from a religious standpoint in those times, that was a huge deal. So if she touched a table or a chair and a ceremonially clean man came and touched that same table or that chair... For seven days, he was unclean, and he had to go outside of town. He couldn't worship. This is how she lived. Everywhere she went, she had to yell the words unclean so that she wouldn't have accidental contact with anyone. This condition was the same as having leprosy, believe it or not. Sounds ridiculous now, but that's how it was happening. Twelve years of a stigma and of a basically a condition that you were known for, labeled for, and that you had to proclaim and wear. And everyone, everyone wanted nothing to do with you. And Mark tells us, he says that she had tried everything, spent all that she had, and the doctors couldn't heal her. Instead of getting better, Mark says, she was getting worse. You want to talk about desperation. This woman was dying. If not dying physically, she was certainly dying emotionally and spiritually. Imagine walking around town having to proclaim who you are in your biggest failure at the top of your lungs so that no one would accidentally have any encounter with you. The giant mistake that you made, whatever that was, or whatever your issue is, or whatever kind of, you had to yell it from the top of your lungs. This is exactly how she lived. Both of these people, in two totally different scenarios, in the exact moments of desperation. Jairus, desperate, his daughter's dying, helpless. He feels helpless. And this woman, completely and totally helpless, both desperate. Both had exhausted all their options. So we see they're desperate, both had exhausted all their options. Do you know what it would have taken for Jairus to actually have to come and ask Jesus for help? He certainly couldn't have been seen doing this, so the religious community would have basically excommunicated him. They would have never allowed him to keep his post. The Pharisees wouldn't have stood for it. If this synagogue leader came to Jesus and basically threw himself at his feet in an act of submission and said, I believe that you can heal. Because the Pharisees, they wanted no part of that. They wanted to prove that he was an imposter. And yet you have a leader of the synagogue throwing himself saying, I believe and I believe that you can do it certainly. 
He had no other options left. Jesus was it. Same thing with this young woman. Nothing. No other options. No doctors, no money. This was sort of the last resort. They were desperate. They'd exhausted their options. But both of them, in some form or fashion, knew that somehow Jesus was the answer. I don't even think they really knew how or why, but they just knew if they could get close enough, something would happen. So we see Jairus go to Jesus, and Mark records him saying this, If you will just come and lay your hand on my daughter, she will live. No explanation, no understanding, just this notion that if Jesus could just get close enough to her, something miraculous could happen. Just this brief understanding that just maybe Jesus was the answer. So I will go forth. This woman in that same category, pressing her way, every person that she's touching through this crowd's, crowd of hundreds becoming unclean, pressing her way through that crowd, falling at Jesus' feet when he stops and says, who touched me? Trembling in fear. And Mark records her saying, I thought that if I could just touch the hem of his robe, I don't know how, I don't know why, But I just had this idea that Jesus, this notion that Jesus is the answer. Desperation, exhausting all of our options, no clear understanding, but just this sense that if I can just get close enough. And they both risked everything. I mean, certainly we see Jairus risking his whole career, his whole sort of social and professional existence. Because if this didn't work, Not only does he lose his daughter because she's dying anyway, but he loses his professional life, his standing culturally and socially. Because he becomes an outcast. Because the religious community wouldn't let him stay in that post. They were going to move him on. You can't just go fall at the feet of this Jesus who we are all basically trying to get out of here, killed. You can't basically say that you believe he can heal and keep your job. It's just true. But you get the sense that Jairus is at the place where he just said, you know what, I don't care anymore. I don't care what the world says. I don't care what people say. I have nothing left. I am absolutely broken and desperate. And so he falls at Jesus' feet in this moment of surrender. And we find this woman, this unnamed woman, in the exact same posture. Jesus is walking back to Jairus' house and this woman comes pressing through risking her very existence, pressing up against everyone, making everyone in the crowd completely and totally unclean. You think she could survive all of that if Jesus didn't heal her? She came to the place where basically she says, I don't care anymore. All I've got is the idea that just maybe Jesus can fix this. Didn't even know how or why. Pressing through the crowds, body to body. In fact, Mark records them saying that Jesus was so, they were so pressing against him that they were crushing him. You ever been in a crowd like that? Imagine working your way through. Everyone you touched, unclean. Touches his robe, healed. And then what do we see? The same posture as Jairus does. She falls to the ground because she realizes she can't hide anymore. Trembling in fear. Risking everything. Now, I find these stories incredible Because of their similarities, right? You've got these polar opposite people, but you've got desperation and exhaustion and and this sort of notion that maybe Jesus was it. I don't even know how or why, and I'm willing to risk everything. But in the middle of all of those, two really incredible things happen, right? Hope happens, 
and healing happened. Now the hope is what's really incredible to me because we're going to see the healing. And I think that Jesus does some remarkable things that go beyond just the physical healing of the daughter and of this woman. But, but the hope is what's amazing to me. So, so look at what he does with this woman. She falls at his feet, unknowing that she cannot hide anymore, right? She is exposed, exposed. All the people standing around. And it says in verse 47 that the woman came trembling and fell at his feet. Trembling. Again, we gloss through these stories, but do you know how much emotion is wrapped up in that word trembling? Have you ever trembled in fear? Imagine 12 years of your life relegated to a condition. A condition that made you, well, it made you an open kind of mockery joke, outcast, isolation to the entire world, realizing that your very existence threatened theirs. And you press your way through this crowd, and then Jesus calls you out, and you know full well that this crowd has the right to stone you to death. She's not falling and trembling because she's embarrassed. She's petrified. And Jesus looks at her, and the way that he always and amazingly does, he looks at her, he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Now, I've talked about this word a lot, and you've heard me say this if you've come at any point in time, basically, because I talk about it a lot, but what Jesus says to her when he says daughter is unbelievable. For most of her life, just 12 years probably, from the time she went through puberty on, for 12 years of her life, people have basically said, you are not wanted here. You are worthless. You can stay outside of town and do not make your way in here. And in fact, in those days, her condition was associated with the fact that God was punishing her. So her whole life, she believed that not only was she an outcast, but the God that made her, as Don said, the God that breathed life into her, hated her, was angry with her, was punishing her. And here's Jesus, God's very son, the very embodiment of God, looking at this woman saying, daughter. It had probably been years since anyone shared a term of affection with her like that. And in the front of this whole crowd of angry people that have been touched by this woman, she, Jesus says, daughter, calling her basically his child. In essence, he's saying, I love you. I love you. And he speaks hope into the middle of her fear, petrifying fear. And Jesus says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Not only does he heal her physically, as we're going to see, but he heals her heart. But what's even more remarkable, or really on top of that, is sort of the same moment that Jesus has with Jairus. He just heals this woman. Crowd pressing all against him, right? As he's still speaking, verse 49 says, while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from Jairus' house. And says, your daughter's dead. Don't bother him anymore. Now either, first of all, the guy needs some lessons on how to break bad news. That's not the way to go. But you almost get to see the sense of deflation in that, right? Like, Jairus, it's too late. She's dead. Don't, don't bother the teacher. Don't bother Jesus anymore. I mean, it's almost this sort of, if we didn't know the end of the story... For me, it would be probably a little bit too much to take. Because here's this guy. I got to Jesus first, right? We were headed to my house, and then this woman slows us down, and now she's dead. How do I 
go on. I mean, my only daughter, my 12-year-old, who I rocked from an infant, who I taught to do all kinds of things, is gone. And don't for a moment think that Jairus isn't wrapped up in fear. It's not just sadness, it's fear, and Jesus knows it. I mean, think about that. As a father, as a provider, as a protector, this is really all you've got. And when you fail somehow at those two, even though it's not your fault, it still is a deep blow. And how do I go on now? And I promise you it was fear. And Jesus know it, knows it's fear because listen to what he says to him. He says, he hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. I find that amazing because that seems like you wouldn't want to say that. You look at Jairus and say, look, it's going to be okay. Don't be sad. Don't be so brokenhearted. She's going to live. But Jesus knows that what he's dealing with is fear. Because what now? Not only have I lost my 12-year-old, but I've risked my entire life, my family's very existence, to fall at your feet, and now she's dead, and I am petrified of how I even go on living. Much less provide for my family. Everything in my life has just come crumbling down. And what does Jesus say? Don't be afraid. They are words of hope. He doesn't just simply take the sorrow away. He just says the words of hope. So you have this woman, Enjira, steeped in fear, exhausted, risking everything, out of options, petrified. And Jesus speaks hope into both of their lives in very different ways, but the very same hope. Shows up at Jairus' house, crowd laughing, laughing at him. Which is almost fitting for how we see Jesus' life. Crowds making a mockery. He takes Jairus and his wife, Peter, James, and John. He goes into the house, tells the crowd to just close it. And he heals this little girl. Actually, he does more than heal her. He brings her to life. And it says that Jairus and his wife, they, they were astonished. I mean, you think their lives would ever be the same? Yes, Jesus healed her. But think about their hearts. They had that kind of interaction with Jesus. You think anything is ever the same again? But they just witnessed. The healing that Jesus does is more than the physical of the little girl. It's to the complete restoration of broken heart. And the woman's the same way. What we see is an outward healing, but what he's done is restored her life in front of everyone. You're healed, and I call you daughter, and basically no one here has a right to say anything else to you, ever. The healing came with her body, but it came in her spirit and her soul. So I started thinking about these interactions and just how Jesus works in the middle of our exhaustion and fear and desperation. I started thinking about what it would look like if I became that desperate for Jesus, willing to risk everything. Don't care anymore what everybody else says, thinks, does. What if I just said, Jesus, I want to know you this intimately. I want you to heal not only my burdens, but I want you to speak hope into my life. And I became that desperate, that risk, that I just put it all out there. What if as a church, that's how we live, just say, you know what, Jesus, you get everything. It's not about us at all. We want to stand in your presence and have you speak hope into our lives that we can proclaim at the top of our lungs to the world. 
At some point in time, all of us are living in a place where we just say, I can't do it anymore. I can't play the game. I just can't fake it. I can't do these things. I'm in desperate need. Sometimes those moments are massive and they're huge and we're facing the loss of someone we love. And sometimes they're just spilling out of our soul saying, I've never felt really this empty. But in those same moments of desperation, Jesus speaks the same moments of hope, same words of hope. Daughter, don't be afraid. What are you afraid of? Afraid of trust? Afraid of relying on Jesus for everything? Afraid of letting go of the control of your life? What is it? Whatever it is, it pales in comparison to God that says, trust me, child, daughter, son, don't be afraid. And we celebrate communion this morning, and, and literally it's the picture of this extravagant love that says, don't be afraid. You know, this is basically what Jesus was doing with the disciples. That very night that he was betrayed... Jesus gathered these disciples together, and basically this meal is a picture of saying, I will forever be with you. They didn't even understand what was transpiring. The disciples really had no idea that on that very night, Jesus would be handed over, betrayed, beaten, crucified, and killed. But this meal, this is a picture of Jesus saying, I am with you. That this body is is mine, this blood is shed for you, and I am with you with you and you will do this in remembrance of me so on that night that he gathered with his disciples the very night that he would be betrayed that everybody would scatter and run all of his closest friends on that very night he got them together and he basically sat sat there with them and after giving thanks he took a loaf of bread and he said this bread is my body broken for you do this in remembrance of me In the same way, after he had taken the bread, he took the cup, and he said, This cup is my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you. Then we take of this bread and this cup, we proclaim Christ's death until he comes again. This is the picture of trust. It's the picture of promise. It's a picture of a God that says, Don't be afraid. I am for you, and I am with you. We take communion by means of intinction, which is just this fancy way of saying as you come down to the front or in the back, just take a piece of bread and, and dip it in the cup, and you can take it back to your seat or take it there. It's not a system of order. It's more of a system of chaos. And as you feel God sort of leading, as Don, our, our team leading worship, you feel God leading, take, come up, take part at one of those stations, move around. But ask yourself this question. God, what word of hope do you want to speak to my heart this morning?